We worship our God again now in the reading and the hearing and the preaching of his word. God himself in his word has appointed that this should be one of the ways that we worship him. His word read in our hearing, his word expounded for our understanding and for our believing. So we turn to 2 Samuel chapter 20. We continue to make our way last week. Let's get our bearings. It was chapter 19 last week. Last week was the conclusion of the whole long, sad Absalom story. And remember what we saw last week. David's side prevailed. Absalom's rebellion was put down. The Lord's anointed was vindicated on the field of battle. And that was good. That was the right outcome. But remember, sometimes even our triumphs are complicated. Victory doesn't always feel entirely like victory. So yes, it's true, David's side prevailed. But it was dampened victory, what we might call a checkered triumph. Remember, there was so much in that one chapter last week, chapter 19, that left us feeling somewhat deflated. Failure and uncertainty, and quarreling, and rejection, and a certain lack of resolution that was left hanging like a cloud over the whole scene. There was so much in that one chapter that left us longing for Christ, even in the aftermath of victory for David as king. So that was last week. That was chapter 19. And sure enough, the very next chapter, Our chapter here this morning, chapter 20, only proves the point. Chapter 20 proves that things weren't really, truly, finally resolved last week with the putting down of Absalom's rebellion. And in fact, this is one of those unhappy chapter breaks in our Bibles that has the effect of breaking up the flow of the story. And there is a flow here. There's something to be said for reading the last few verses of chapter 19 and then going straight into chapter 20. Remember how chapter 19 ended. So we're backing up just a few verses. The end of chapter 19. Listen to it again. Beginning at verse 41. And and this is when... The tribes are going back and forth about the business of bringing David back to Jerusalem to reign now that Absalom has been killed. Verse 41 in chapter 19. Then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all David's men with him? All the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, because the king is our close relative. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten it all at the king's expense, or has he given us any gift? And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, We have ten shares in the king, and in David also we have more than you. Why then did you despise us? Were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. So, brothers and sisters, what we've got there The end of chapter 19 is is a division, a charged division that is widening 
between two sides among the people of God. On one side, you've got the tribe of Judah in the south, which is David's tribe. And on the other side, you've got pretty much everyone else. And one of the reasons why I say that chapter 19 goes right into chapter 20 is the very first thing that we read in chapter 20 is this. Look at verse 1. Now there happened to be there a worthless man whose name was Sheba. There happened to be there a worthless man whose name was Sheba. In other words, the campaign that Sheba launches in chapter 20, it grows out of that tense confrontation at the end of chapter 19. He was there for it. He was there for that confrontation. He witnessed it and felt personally aggrieved by the outcome. And it's because of what happened there that day that he decided to take matters into his own hands and rally the other tribes against David and lead this breakaway. So chapter 19 goes right into 20. Let's keep going. Chapter 20, beginning at verse 1. Now there happened to be there a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjaminite. And he blew the trumpet and said, We have no portion in David, and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. And David came to his house at Jerusalem. And the king took the ten concubines whom he had left to care for the house and put them in a house under guard and provided for them, but did not go into them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. Pause there. I'll simply say, by the way, what's recounted there in verse 3, that is a sad epilogue on something we saw several chapters back. You may remember it when Absalom grabbed for the throne and David was forced to flee and leave behind all who belonged to him. Absalom resorted to an awful gesture. He used these women as a way of publicly staking his claim for the throne. And this is a sad epilogue on that as David comes back to Jerusalem. Let's keep going. Verse 4. Then the king said to Amasa, Call the men of Judah together to me within three days and be here yourself. Remember, Amasa had been appointed by David to lead his army now instead of Joab. Verse 5. So Amasa went to summon Judah, but he delayed beyond the set time that had been appointed him. And David said to Abishai, Now Sheba the son of Bichri will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he get himself to fortified cities and escape from us. And there went out after him Joab's men, and the Cherethites, and the Pelethites, and all the mighty men. They went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba the son of Bichri. When they were at the great stone that is in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. Now Joab was wearing a soldier's garment, and over it was a belt with a sword in its sheath fastened on his thigh, and as he went forward it fell out. And Joab said to Amasa, Is it well with you, my brother? 
And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand. So Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow, and he died. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. And one of Joab's young men took a stand by Amasa and said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. And Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the highway. And anyone who came by, seeing him, stopped. And when the man saw that all the people stopped, he carried Amasa out of the highway into the field and threw a garment over him. When he was taken out of the highway, all the people went on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. And Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel of Bethmaacah. And all the Bichrites assembled and followed him in. And all the men who were with Joab came and besieged him in Abel of Bethmaacah. They cast up a mound against the city, and it stood against the rampart, and they were battering the wall to throw it down. Then a wise woman called from the city, Listen, listen, tell Joab, come here that I may speak to you. And he came near her, and the woman said, Are you Joab? He answered, I am. Then she said to him, Listen to the words of your servant. And he answered, I am listening. Then she said, They used to say in former times, Let them but ask counsel at Abel. And so they settled a matter. I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? Joab answered, Far be it for me, far be it that I should swallow up or destroy. That is not true. But a man of the hill country of Ephraim called Sheba, the son of Bichri, has lifted up his hand against King David. Give him up alone, and I will withdraw from the city. And the woman said to Joab, Behold, his head shall be thrown to you over the wall. Then the woman went to all the people in her wisdom, and they cut off the head of Sheba, Sheba, the son of Bichri, and threw it out to Joab. So he blew the trumpet, and they dispersed from the city, every man to his home. And Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. Now Joab was in command of all the army of Israel, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was in command of the Cherethites and the Pelethites. And Adoram was in charge of the forced labor. And Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilad, was the recorder. And Shiva was secretary. And Zadok and Abiathar were priests. And Ira the Jairite was also David's priest. And that's how chapter 20 comes to a close. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word, which we have heard, and we seek your favor now. That by the ministry of your spirit, you would open our eyes to behold the truth here. And that you would fuel within us a love for that truth. That we might rise from this place and go forth, believing and living according to your word. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The whole sad Absalom story, including Absalom's rebellion, 
That one took us a full seven chapters. This one only takes up one. Sheba, the son of Bichri, gets one chapter. He gets one Sunday in our series, and that's it. Today's his day. So you had that tense confrontation at the end of the last chapter, chapter 19. You had that division, that charged division between the tribe of Judah, David's tribe, and everyone else. Sheba's the one who launches this particular rebellion, and then he's also the one who comes to what we can fairly describe as a rather pitiful end. This one does seem to be relatively short-lived. Sheba goes down in history as the one whose rebellion came to an end when the good people of Abel of Bethmaic had cut off his head and tossed it over the wall. And the whole thing at that point petered out in a whimper. An ignominious conclusion, to be sure. It's bordering on comical, though it was awful, no doubt. One thing to notice, by the way, in this chapter is Joab. Again, we, we've mentioned before, Joab comes across as a checkered figure in this unfolding story. He has his moments, good ones. He has others that were not good at all. Here's Joab once again shedding blood that he shouldn't have, killing Amasa. Amasa, remember, who'd been appointed in charge of the army, replacing Joab in the aftermath of Absalom's rebellion. Joab has done this before. Remember, way back in chapter 3, he killed Abner when he had no just cause to do so. That was way back in chapter 3. More recently, back in chapter 18, Joab killed Absalom, even though the king told him not to. And Absalom was defenseless in that moment. Joab has done this before, and now he's done it again. Now he has killed Amasa, and once again, he's, he's done it in this underhanded, deceitful way. He killed Abner like that, too. Remember that? Way back in chapter 3, he said, in effect, oh, I just want to talk. He didn't want to talk to Abner. He killed him. And now he's killed Amasa in a similar way. So it's true. Our chapter this morning ends with... Joab in command of all the army. Joab's mentioned in that, that list of, of David's servants and their responsibilities. But that does not mean that Joab is some kind of heroic figure at this point. Or that he's firmly established in David's favor. Far from it. And as I mentioned, I think, last week, don't forget where the story goes after this. For Joab. We're not going to go there into 1 Kings, so this is a preview of a book beyond ours. But where the story goes is to Joab's downfall because of the blood that he shed. When David's an old man and he's prepping Solomon to reign after him, this is in 1 Kings 2. David says to Solomon, you know what Joab, the son of Zeruiah, did to me. How he dealt with the two commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner, the son of Ner, and Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he killed. 
avenging in time of peace for blood that had been shed in war, and putting the blood of war on the belt around his waist and on the sandals on his feet. And then David says to Solomon, Act therefore according to your wisdom, but do not let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace. That's 1 Kings 2. And sure enough, later on in that chapter, after David has died and Solomon is reigning, that word comes true. And Solomon has Joab struck down, in part because Joab made the mistake of siding with someone else who grabbed for the throne in Solomon's time. But one of the reasons why Joab is finally killed is what he does here in our chapter this morning, 2 Samuel 20, killing a mesa like this. So that, that might feel like a loose end at the end of our chapter today, and in a way it is that, but that loose end is eventually tied up. Joab got his justice in the end. So that's one thing to notice, by the way, here in our chapter. But what I want to focus on this morning is at the very beginning of our chapter, what Sheba says in verse 1, what he says in order to rally the people to his side when he spearheads this breakaway rebellion that leads to civil war. It's, it's worth reflecting upon Sheba's rallying cry because it's, it's significant what he says in an effort to get people to go with him. There's a lesson in there for us to learn. And, and think about this against the backdrop of Absalom. When it was Absalom a few chapters ago, who was trying to rally the people to his side. When it was Absalom who was trying to win the hearts of the people. Do you remember what Absalom said? The very clever case that Absalom made. You'd have people coming to Jerusalem, coming to David in Jerusalem, with cases and complaints that they wanted David as king to rule on so that justice might be served. And you remember Absalom would kind of cut them off on their way into town. And Absalom would say to him, your claims are good and right, but there's no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. That's how he did it. And that's telling. The, the appeal that Absalom was making was... You cannot trust your king to be the guardian of justice for you that he ought to be. And that appeal worked. Why? Because that's exactly what the people rightly desired and expected their king to be. 
The appeal that Absalom made, it worked because it played on a right understanding of kingship. It's true that in those days the king ought to be a man who hears and settles cases justly and wisely, or at least he ought to appoint people to do that for him. So that's how Absalom won the hearts of the people. It played on their understanding and their desire for what their king ought to be, even if he was deceptive about it. Well, something like that's going on here with Sheba, the son of Bichri, in our chapter this morning, chapter 20. The very beginning of the chapter, verse 1, what is Sheba's rallying cry? How does he get people to agree with him and to follow him? Look at verse 1. He blew the trumpet and said, We have no portion in David, and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse, every man to his tents, O Israel. In other words, this guy's not one of us. He's from the tribe of Judah. He's not one of us, and therefore, we cannot trust him, we cannot look to him to be the proponent of our welfare that he ought to be. That was the claim. That was the charge. That was the false logic. This guy's not one of us, and therefore, we cannot look to him to be the proponent of our welfare that he ought to be. Now, it was true that David was from the tribe of Judah. And so in that sense, it was true that he wasn't one of them, these other tribes. And it's also true, we can admit this, that the whole matter of bringing David back to the throne, that may not have been handled well, but it didn't follow from that. It was false logic to conclude that therefore David will not be for the rest of the tribes the king that he ought to be. To conclude, therefore, we who belong to the other tribes are going to get the shaft. No, David was perfectly capable of being a king for all the people. Even though this was a moment of real tension and conflict between Judah and the rest of the tribes. Still, by God's appointment, David was perfectly capable of being a king for all the people. And they should have known that. This breakaway rebellion was unwarranted. And by the way, can't you just imagine, among the tribes that did break away and follow Sheba, Sheba, who was a Benjaminite, Can't you just imagine all of the other tribes except for Benjamin saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, this guy's a Benjaminite. Why should we trust him? Why should we trust that we can look to him to be the proponent of our welfare that that he, he ought to be? Maybe he'll be all about Benjamin and we'll end up getting the share. Can't you just imagine them saying, we have no portion in Sheba, we have no inheritance in the son of Bichri, of Benjamin, every man to his tents. In other words, this is the kind of breakaway rebellion 
that has the seeds of further breaking away and rebelling sown in it. One way or another, this does not end well. And we can notice this too. This is not the last time that you hear this kind of language in the Old Testament. It happens again. After Solomon dies, And his son Rehoboam comes to the throne. And right out of the gate, Rehoboam does not rule well, kindly, wisely. It happens again. A breakaway rebellion. And the rallying cry is exactly the same. This is 1 Kings 12. It says this, When all Israel saw that the king, that is Rehoboam, did not listen to them, the people answered the king, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, look now to your own house, O David. So this isn't the last time that you hear this rallying cry. The difference is that later, if we can put it this way, it works, it sticks. They break away and they stay broken away for hundreds of years. So this is something of a running theme, this rallying cry in the Old Testament. In any case, back to our our chapter, back to 2 Samuel 20. This is is what Sheba says when he's trying to get people to agree with him and to follow him. This is his rallying cry that leads to civil war. So just like with Absalom before... It's the same thing with Sheba now. The appeal that Sheba made, the call that he sounded, it tells us something about what the people rightly desired and expected their king to be. The appeal that he made worked because it played on a right understanding of kingship. It's true. The king ought to be a man that his subjects can look to and trust in as someone who will care for their welfare, for the welfare of the whole people. That was true. That was sound. Though they were wrong to conclude that David couldn't be that kind of king for them, they were right to want him to be that kind of king. That's why Sheba's appeal worked. Sheba was a worthless man, we're told. He was a scoundrel. But his words did have some appeal And that's because they did have within them some truth. Though they were wrong to conclude that it was time to break away from David, thinking that he couldn't be that kind of king, they were right to want that kind of king in the first place. That was sound. To borrow Sheba's own language, we can say, the people of God ought to be able to look at their king and say, we have a portion. In him, we have an inheritance in him. And you won't be surprised to hear that where my own mind went with all of this was straight to Jesus Christ. This all finally leads to him. When you stop and think about Sheba's rallying cry and what it says about kingship 
it finally leads to Christ. Happily, it leads to him in a way that is wonderful and satisfying and saving. Here's the point. Jesus is a king that every Christian can look to, to preserve and protect and defend and promote his welfare as a Christian, even though it's true. But there are some things that we can say about Jesus and his humanity that set him apart from many believers. Things that those believers don't share with him. Things that those believers cannot identify with. That was true of Jesus when he came into the world. And it still is. And in some ways it always will be. In his humanity, he's not like every believer in every way. We can start with the obvious. Jesus is a man. He's not a woman. And so immediately, there's a vast percentage of Christians around the world and throughout the ages who can say about Jesus, he's not one of us, in that sense. Ladies, women and young women and girls and little girls of New Hope Presbyterian Church, your Savior is male in his humanity. So we can start there. But it's not just that. There's more. There are other things. Jesus is the son of Mary in his humanity. During his earthly life, there was a bond between those two that no one else had as Mary did. And that's still true right now in heaven. And that will be forever true in the world to come. She, she has a bond with him in his humanity that the rest of us don't. Jesus was especially close to the Apostle John. During his earthly ministry, there was a bond between those two that was unique. And that must still be true right now in heaven. And it will be forever. The part of the world that Jesus lived in, the relationships that defined his life, the particular struggles that he faced, the unique moment in history that he lived in. There are all sorts of things that we can say about Jesus and his humanity that set him apart from many believers. It was true in the course of his earthly life. In some ways, it's still true right now in heaven. In some ways, it will be true for all eternity. Now, we we can admit we don't know entirely now what we'll take with us from this world into the world above and then into the world to come. But surely some of the things that we've been talking about, they're still true of him now in that world, and they always will be. As mysterious as that world is to us right now, there's some kind of continuity, even memory, between this world and that one. But here's the point. Here's the consolation. That does not mean that Jesus is now or will be forever anything less than the king that each and every one of us needs him to be. He's just what we need. Each and every Christian can say, he's just what I need. It's one of the lovely things that comes across about Jesus in the Gospels. The way that he seems to go out of his way to bring people in and to reassure them that they can trust in him, even though in certain ways he's not one of them. The women that he brought into his orbit the Samaritans that he showed mercy to, the Gentiles whose faith he praised, 
the lepers whose bodies and souls he healed, the tax collectors whose work he vindicated. All of these people who might have thought, especially because of the way things were in those days, all of these people who might have thought, this guy's not one of us. This Jewish rabbi probably doesn't want anything to do with us, and we can't have anything to do with him, and we can't have any hope in him, and Jesus would go to them and honor them and bring them in and save them, and it was beautiful. Jesus' whole ministry sent the message to those people, you've got nothing to worry about. You don't have to worry that I'm not really going to be for you. You don't have to worry that you're going to end up on the outside looking in. It's not going to happen. Because I don't need to be exactly like you in every way in order to be the king and savior for you that you need me to be. I'll admit, it does strike me now and then that I've placed my faith and committed my entire life to a person, a divine person, the divine Son of God, who comes to me now robed in the humanity that he took to himself as a Jewish man living in that land so far away 2,000 years ago. Now, it's certainly true. His humanity is glorified now. His humanity is not exactly what it was all those years ago prior to his resurrection, and we can be grateful for that. But still, it's true. He came into the world then and there and that way and not here and now and this way. And for all eternity, he will be robed in that humanity that in some ways bears some continuity with the way that he came into the world in the first place. But that's okay. He's still all the king and savior for me that I need him to be. This boy from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, who lived a 20th and then 21st century life. I can look to Jesus of Nazareth, who lived and died and rose when and where and how he did, and who now reigns in glory, and I find in him my all in all. And each and every Christian can look to him like that. So yeah, Sheba was a rebel. Sheba was a worthless man. But we can learn from the language that he learned. I love, I love the language in there of portion and inheritance. Remember, Sheba says, we have no portion in David. We have no inheritance in him. But now each and every Christian can look at Jesus of Nazareth in glory and say, the Lord is my portion. There's no Christian who cannot say that, who's on the outside looking in. Each and every Christian can look at Jesus of Nazareth and say, I am a fellow heir with him who is the Son of God. I have an inheritance in him because he will come into his own inheritance and he will share it. With me, There's no Christian who cannot say that. That's why I read for us Romans 8 earlier in our service. Paul says we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. The meek shall inherit the earth. And each and every Christian who by God's grace is now numbered among the meek can take that personally. This is a good and challenging word for us in our own day. Ours is a day of such rampant and relentless self-absorption. 
We're so deeply immersed in our own feelings and experiences that we can hardly imagine that anyone else has anything to offer us who hasn't felt and experienced the very same things that we have. So this is a good word for us. Christian, I want to reassure you today. Do you ever harbor doubts deep down that the man Christ Jesus The man, Jesus of Nazareth, can be the king for you that you need him to be. Christian, I want to reassure you today, take heart. He can be, and he is. Christian, I want to challenge you today. Don't lapse into the fallacy of Sheba, the son of Bichri, thinking that you need to look elsewhere for a king. Even worse, that you need to take matters into your own hands because you're thinking that the son of David, the man, Jesus of Nazareth, cannot be what you need. He can be, and he is. So let us rest and rejoice in him today, each and every one of us, with everything that makes each of us unique. Let us rest and rejoice in Jesus today. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we bow before you now as our king, great David's greater son, now exalted to the Father's right hand. You are Jesus of Nazareth. And we have to look way back in history and far away on the map to consider your earthly life and experience and ministry. You are Jesus of Nazareth, now glorified. Thank you that each and every one of us who believes in you can find you to be just the king that we need. We hail you today, who is the Christ of God and the king that God has given We did so earlier in song. We do so now in prayer. Amen.